0: We're starting a new series today called Tearing the Veil, and what I want to do today is kind of transition us from the series we're wrapping up that we've been talking about the last several weeks, the body, the church, into this new series on Tearing the Veil. And we've been the last several weeks looking at passages in 1 Corinthians, and so this will be the last Sunday for a while that we're in the letter of 1 Corinthians, and since it's Valentine's Day, we're in 1 Corinthians 13, which talks about love. Interestingly, this passage is often read at weddings, but this was not written to a married couple. This was written to a church, a community of believers in the first century, in Corinth, in the midst of the Roman Empire. And Paul is instructing them, this is the way of love. And it has a lot less to do with emotions and affections as it does to do with a choice. Living in such a way that we love each other well. The church loving each other well. The church loving the world well. And so I want to lead us up to this point in 1 Corinthians 13 by kind of reviewing a little bit of where we've been. Because this entire letter is building to this point where Paul says, Now this is the most excellent way. This is the best way. Possible way to live. It's the way of love. It's allowing the love of Jesus to flow through you. So one of the things we talked about last week, if I can have the next slide, was this debate about meat sacrificed to idols. And Paul says, now about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. So he's preparing them for this beautiful writing he will have about love by saying, hey, these arguments you're having about who's right, who's wrong, not the issue. Let the argument die because love is the best possible way to live. And we talked last week about how we can be wrong in the way we are right. We're so addicted to being right, that we're often wrong in the way we are right. And so Paul goes on to talk about this debate about meat sacrificed to idols and whether you need it or not and what's going on with that. And he builds to this point in the next slide, 1 Corinthians 10, he says, uh, There's a saying in Corinth I have the right to do anything, you say. But not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. So if there's something you're doing that is okay and no big deal, but it's not building you up, it's not building others up, it's probably not beneficial. And so I suggested last week, what would it look like if we all spent some time reflecting on what's something that I do a lot? something that I do regularly. It's not immoral, it's not a sin, it's not bad, but it's not the best. It's not the best thing in my life. It it is distracting me in my relationship with God and in my relationship with others. What is something that's permissible but not necessarily beneficial? And I suggest that maybe for many of us it might have something to do with a screen in our lives. And as I was thinking about this more this past week, I was thinking well, if we all reflected on that individually, what if we also reflected on it with others in our lives? What if we asked the people closest to us, What do you see in my life? That's fine, it's permissible. It's okay, but you've noticed it's—it it actually isn't beneficial. It, it might be distracting me in my relationship with God and others. Uh, about three, four weeks before Lent started, Jenna says to me, <clears throat> "Matt, I think you should give up coffee for Lent." <laughs> <laughs> and, and I said, "No." She said, well, you should really consider it. I said, okay, I'll consider it now. Uh, And then this past Wednesday, Ash Wednesday, the day Lent begins, I'm in the kitchen, and I hand-grind my coffee beans every morning. And then I do my special pour-over coffee, and I put it in a to-go mug And I got in the car, and on Wednesday mornings, I take my two girls to their school. And Zoya's class starts before Cora's class, so I drop Zoya off, and Cora and I came to Bay Marin, and she starts reading my office. I set my computer up, about to start work, and I'm like, where's my coffee? I can't find it. I knew I had it in the car with me, and I was certain I brought it in to the office with me, but I can't find it. So I start looking in all the obvious places, behind my computer, uh, on the side table, I can't find it. So I go out into the entryway uh, of the student center, I'm like, I probably left it on that table, not there. I'm like, well maybe I set it, I was carrying Cora stuff and my stuff, so maybe I set it on the front porch there, I look out there, not there. So I go back to my office and I'm looking around, can't find it, so I go back out to my car, I search throughout my entire car, I cannot find my coffee. I go back into the office, look again, can't find it. Cora, have you seen my coffee mug? And there's like three regular coffee mugs, not to-go mugs. She, is that it? Is that it? Is that No, that's not it. I'm looking for my to-go mug. She's like, I can't find it. So I go back out to my car, I look again, can't find it. I'm like, God stole my coffee mug. <laughs> this, this is God's way of saying you should have listened to Jenna. You're supposed to give up coffee for Lent. I can't find my coffee mug. An hour later, Cora and I get in the car, we start driving Uh, to her school, pull out of the parking lot, and I hear this rolling sound on my car and down onto my back window, and I look in the rearview mirror, and there is my coffee mug. I had left it on top of my car, and I'm like, God caused my coffee mug to rain down from heaven. I can drink my coffee. (laughs) But anyhow, I got home, and I told Jenna that story, and I said that it just makes me think that maybe this is a good practice. For others to speak into our lives about what they see in our lives that might be fine and permissible but not necessarily beneficial. And it led to a really great conversation. I'm still drinking coffee. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But it's good practice to have those conversations. I'm not an addict, I'm not in denial. I have one cup in the morning, one cup in the afternoon. (laughs) Oh. Then Paul goes on to talk about how we practice partaking of this table. And there were these arguments about it, and people were elevated above others, and the rich had a more prominent place than the poor. And he's like, are you kidding me? This table levels the playing field. It doesn't matter who you are, rich or poor. It doesn't matter. Everyone is welcome at this table equally. No greater status is given to others. And then he starts talking about spiritual gifts, where the church at Corinth was doing the same thing. These gifts given by the Spirit, and they were arguing about which ones were the best, and who was a more vital part of the body than others. Some just really don't matter as much. And Paul's like, no, 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 no. The body is one. Every part matters. Every part is needed and necessary. And these gifts aren't for you to argue about who's better. They are given to you to bless others. They're given to you to benefit everyone. And so he then moves at the very end of chapter 12 in 1 Corinthians. I will show you The most excellent way. There's all these gifts, and that's great. They're given to you to benefit others. Not yourself, others. But let me show you the most excellent way to live. No matter what gift you have, let me show you the most excellent way to live. He says, if I speak in tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. So Paul is saying, listen, you can have all these gifts. You can have all these amazing gifts, but without love... This is what it is. You can be awesome. You're so awesome. But without love? Is this annoying yet? That's what Paul says your gift is without love. You can be the most amazing person on the planet. But without love, just this is what it sounds like. You ever been with someone, you met someone new? And all they could do was talk about themselves. It's kinda of like this, right? And you were being polite and you kept asking them questions and they just kept talking about themselves and they didn't ask you a single question. You're like, this person's a clanging symbol. All they can do is talk about themselves. <laughs> Whoo, yeah. Without love. That's all it is. A clanging symbol. Paul says, love is the best, most excellent way to live. Well, what is love? Glad you asked. Paul tells us. His definition of love begins, love is patient. We could just sit with that for a while, couldn't we? I I don't know about you, but I... I want more patience in my life. When I step back for a moment and watch myself and the ways I can be impatient with my own children, I long for more patience in my life. I want to be a more patient person. Paul says, this is the first thing he says about love. It's patient. It's patient when you're sitting in traffic. When someone cuts you off. At work. When you feel stuck in life. I just wish I knew what I was supposed to do next. Love. Love is patient. It's the first thing Paul says about love. Love is kind. If you've been at Bay Marin for very long, you know that I'm pretty particular about this. Nice is not kind. Nice is not a fruit of the Spirit. Nice is not a part of Paul's definition of love. Nice acquiesces. Kindness enters into relationship. And with great humility and graciousness. And love talks to the other. Love is kind. I don't know about you, but I I want more kindness in my life. I want to be more kind. And Paul says that this is a part of what love is. Love is patient. Love is kind. He says it does not envy. It doesn't envy. When we love well, we don't look at someone else and say, I wish I had their body. I wish I had their car. I wish I had their job. I wish I had their house. I wish I was like that person. I wish I had their spouse. I wish I had their kid. I wish I had that. Which doesn't belong to me. Love doesn't envy. Instead, it is content with life as it is. Love is patient, it's kind, it doesn't envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It's not the clanging cymbal. I'm just trying to keep you all awake this morning, that's all. It doesn't boast. It's not proud. Love. Love. He says, it does not dishonor others. This was a big deal in Corinth. Corinth. A lot of dishonoring going on. There was a hierarchy. There were people were, some people were of lesser value than others. And and Paul says, no, it it doesn't dishonor anyone. It's not rude. It it simply accepts everyone for who they are, accepts their gifts, sees that their gifts are a vital contribution and necessity to the entire body. It's not rude. It doesn't dishonor others. It elevates others. When, when love sees those who are on the underside of power, love enters in and elevates them and honors them. It is not self-seeking. Love is not something where you just look out for your own interest. It looks out for the interests of others is what Paul tells us about love. It doesn't seek just your own good. It looks to the good of others. How can I benefit others? How can I bless others? How can I love others? Well, it is not easily angered. Now, none of us like to admit that we get easily angered, so let's put it in different terms. Irritable. Are you irritable? Uh, That might be a a way of thinking about being easily angered. I don't know about you, but I want to be less irritable. Uh, Jenna's family was in town uh, a little over a week ago, and um, there were a couple of birthdays. We were celebrating together, and Jenna, her her dad owns a balloon shop, and so he always gives balloons. Uh, Balloons make me a bit irritable. Uh, And so before they came, uh, Jenna put up decorations everywhere, balloons everywhere, and down our hallway, right now, it's still there, uh, there's this string going all the way down the hallway with balloons tied to it, and every time I walk down that hallway... I bump my head on these balloons, and it drives me nuts. (laughs) And I was reflecting on that. I was like, why why am I getting so irritable about the balloons? Why can't I just have fun with it? Why can't I just enjoy it? I, I want to be less irritable. I want to be a more loving person. Love keeps no record of wrongs. This is a hard one, isn't it? We have our lists of the wrongs done to us. We're good at holding grudges. And and we say we've forgiven. We, We say we don't have the grudge anymore, but then we're reminded of something, and man, it comes right back up, doesn't it? It's right back there on the list. Love forgives. Now, To forgive does not mean we forget. There's a difference. It happened. You need to name that it happened. It's a part of your story. You don't just forget it. You can, however, forgive it. So to forgive is not to forget... To forgive is to say it happened, it was wrong, and yet so much grace and forgiveness has been given to me by God that I can offer grace and forgiveness to this person who wronged me. And in that sense, it can be forgotten, but it's never fully, like, it never happened. It's just I'm not, it's no longer on my list. I'm not keeping a record of it that I will bring back up. Something that forgiveness also isn't is reconciliation. The goal is reconciliation. But there are times when people are hurt so badly, whether through physical abuse, sexual abuse, deep emotional abuse, deeply, deeply wronged. It is still possible by God's grace to forgive the offender. It does not necessarily mean you reconcile the relationship. In this life, that may not be possible. And it often is just simply not wise. You need healthy boundaries. You need self-protection. You need to surround yourself with people who know you, love you, who you trust. But by God's Grace, somehow mysteriously, you can forgive the offender. Love forgives. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Love loves truth. It does not delight in evil. And I don't think any of us would say, oh, I I delight in evil. Uh, But but there are ways that we can do this subtly, where, where we just accept evil. Whether in the way we watch television shows or films, where we just kind of violence, lots of violence, and we're just kind of okay with it. Doesn't mean you shouldn't watch those. It does mean you should think critically about what you do watch. It does mean you should prayerfully engage culture, not just immerse yourself in it. And so to love well while engaging in culture or entertainment of any kind is to Paul says elsewhere, uh, pray always. How do you pray always? It's, It's having this mindset. Paul also says we have the mind of Christ. So the way we engage culture, the way we think about these things, is prayerfully. Prayerful engagement. And then we need to ask ourselves, well, this is permissible, but is it beneficial? Is this building me up? And it's going to be different for different people. Uh, If you talk to a number of Christian ethicists, they will tell you that the opposite of love is not hate. It's indifference. It's just being indifferent. Indifferent towards God, indifferent towards others, indifferent towards the planet just indifferent, rather than relationally engaging with love. Love does not delight in evil. It rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Love doesn't give up. God's love does not give up on us. We're called to be a people who embody God's love and not give up on ourselves or on others. Love perseveres. It doesn't fail. Love hopes. Paul will go on to talk about these three virtues that remain. Faith, hope, and love. The greatest is love. Hope is one of those virtues. Uh, Cynicism is the enemy of hope. We live in a culture that is very cynical. I don't know about you, but I want to be a person of more hope. I want to have less cynicism in my life. I half joke that I'm a recovering cynic, but it's true, I'm a recovering cynic. I don't want to live with cynicism In my life, I want to live with great hope. Because we are a people of the resurrection. And we serve a God who became human, lived among us, died a violent and brutal death, but conquered death and rose again. And because Christ has conquered death, in a resurrected body, we too have great hope of a future resurrection when Christ returns. Uh, The great uh, missiologist Leslie Newbegin, he was a missionary to India, he was once asked, Leslie, are you an optimist or a pessimist? And Leslie Newbegin looked at the interviewer and he said, I'm neither an optimist nor a pessimist. I believe in the resurrection. I believe in hope. I believe in hope. Hope is something that gets us up in the morning and believes that we can make it another day. By God's grace, living in and through us, that we can be a people of hope and we can live with great hope. Where there are prophecies, they will cease. And so Paul begins First Corinthians 13 by talking about gifts and how they're meaningless apart from love. Love is the best way, he says. It's the most excellent way. And here he returns to the gifts. And he says, this is why love is the best way. Because these gifts that you have, many of them, they're they're not going to extend into the next life. They'll just simply not be necessary any longer. Here, they're necessary for building one another up. In the next life, many of them, they're they're just not necessary any longer. Where there's prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. Paul here, he's inviting the Corinthians to grow up. We too are invited to grow up, to mature in our faith. In the way of love. For now we see only a pale reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Paul is saying, You know, it might be a good idea to practice love well now because it is going to remain in the next life. It will remain. It will move on into the future where God's love fills us more and more and more. And we can only begin to see it now. But in the future... It'll be more than we could ever imagine. Uh, preparing for today, I, I was thinking about now we see in a meal, in a mirror, uh, a reflection is in a mirror, and thinking about how a mirror, it shows us the opposite of ourselves. And so I Googled uh, the deception of a mirror. And you know, you know what came up? Have you heard of this? It's called the skinny mirror. It, it's real. Uh, a number of. Uh, Women's clothing shops are now, now have them up so that when you try and a dress, you look skinnier. Uh, and you can buy it. You can have it in your home. I was like, you've you got to be kidding me. Like, uh, mirrors deceive, and this mirror really deceives. Uh, love. Love doesn't deceive. And we're invited to love well here because it will last forever. Um, I just want to play as many instruments for you as possible this morning. So, how's that feel? So uh, there's this story, many believe it's a myth, but the story that Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart would come home late at night And when he got home, uh, his father, Leopold, who was also a musician, uh, Wolfgang would play a scale, but not the last note. And he'd go to bed. And Leopold was so frustrated by this. He he would wake up, and then he couldn't go to sleep, because the scale hadn't been finished. And he'd have to get up, out of bed, run downstairs, and (coughs) hit the last note. And then he could go to sleep. Love is like playing a scale. It, it, the music of love, it, it's not a duty. It's our destiny. It's what we're called to. We're called to play the scale of love, but knowing that the last note is always, there's always more. There's always more love. And God's love is far greater than we could ever imagine. And it will carry on into the future. As we enter into this uh, journey, this this series of tearing the veil, here's the idea behind it. When God created humans, there was no barrier. There's no barrier between God and humans. God walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day, It, it was just beyond what we could. Imagine that someday we will get to experience. There is no barrier. There is no veil between us and God. But then humans chose autonomy from God. They chose to rebel against God. They said, this story you're writing, uh, my part in it, it's not good enough. I I want a better story. And then immediately realized, oops, I think we were wrong. And they they put veils up. Uh, Theirs were fig leaves they hid behind fig leaves they were hiding and and ever since then we've been hiding in some capacity or another hiding from god hiding from others we put these veils up because we don't want people to truly see who we are there's this veil in the temple separating god from people but jesus came to tear the veil jesus came to destroy the veil and the veil in the temple split but we, we keep putting it back up. And so this Lent, we want to explore what does it look like to let that veil stay torn. And so this morning when we come and partake of the bread and the cup, I'll give you one of these and maybe put it somewhere at your house and throughout Lent. I would invite you to write things on it that separate you from God. And throughout Lent, we'll just tear these a little bit at a time, and then bring them back with you on Good Friday. If you're wondering what to write on it, maybe a good place to start would be to just read through 1 Corinthians 13, and for me, I'm writing on mine uh, when I'm not patient. When I'm not kind, when I envy, when I boast, when I'm easily angered, just name these things. Name them and simply offer them back to God and say, God, I want I, the veil is torn. Help me keep it torn because I keep putting back up this artificial veil between me and you. Jesus came to tear the veil. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. Take it and eat in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup. He said, this cup It's the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Take it and drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. God, we thank you. We thank you for this beautiful portion of scripture that talks about what true love is. And God, we know that you never want us to live out of guilt or shame. We, sh- we should not explore these areas of our life where we fall short just to feel guilty about them, but rather to be spurred on to love. And God, we know that we desperately need you to fill us with your love. We are not capable in and of ourselves to forgive well be patient well, to be kind well. God, allow your spirit to flow through us in such beautiful ways that we become the loving people you created us to be, that we will live into this most excellent way. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. As you go today, may you know the love of Christ, which surpasses anything we could ever imagine. May that love fill you to overflowing. May we be a people of faith. May we be a people of hope. May we be a people of love. The grace and peace of Christ be yours in abundance. Amen.